Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. We are living longer and healthier lives in the current times. I would add an asterisk to living healthier. For the most part, that is true, but we're facing some rising challenges to the general health of the population. This is especially true in the US, which has seen a decline in a number of metrics that measure the health of the population, including lifespan, which has declined for the last two years. This is a reversal of a fairly consistent trend elsewhere in developed nations that have seen year over year continued improvements. No doubt the pandemic has had a measurable impact on the life expectancy that we have seen, but that alone does not explain the decline and it's troubling given the prior steady progress and increase in life expectancy. On Healthcare Upside Down, we focused on a number of the causes and factors involved in this, identifying the underlying problems and talking to people who have both helped identify these problems as well as find solutions. This week, we're focusing on one of the silent killers that are seeing a worrying rise in incidence in our population, diabetes. For most people, the term is understood as a problem with sugar, specifically excess sugar in the bloodstream. There are two clearly understood forms of diabetes found in our population, type one diabetes, perhaps not a great name, and better called insulin-dependent or juvenile diabetes. I'm simplifying here, but this typically occurs in the young, although not exclusively, and is caused by the failure of the islets of Langerhans, so named after the German physician who first described these patches of tissue found in the pancreas, which produce insulin that regulates our blood sugar level. The other clearly understood diabetes is type 2, or diabetes mellitus, or mellitus, or adult onset diabetes. This has the same result, which is a rise in blood sugar, but with a slightly different causative agent. Again, simplifying, but insulin resistance. As you will hear, the incidence is high in our population, and many may remain undiagnosed until the presentation in an emergency room or doctor's office with a serious clinical condition that is indirectly caused by the excess sugar floating around in their bloodstream. This disease is a silent maimer and one that can and should be aggressively managed and treated. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. John Bloom, an anaesthetist and CEO and co-founder of Podimetrics. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Nick, thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on. So... We're talking diabetes and you know the impact. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me is the astoundingly high number of folks 
just in the United States, and you know, this is a worldwide problem to be clear, but let's focus on the United States, fully over 10% of the population are suffering from diabetes. It's almost as if, well, that's an aging disease. It's something that you can expect to get. What are your thoughts? Well, it's, it's, it's remarkable as you think about the number of diagnosed cases, which is over, I wanna say 33 million, something to that extent. But so many more patients, of course, are undiagnosed. We, we don't find out about it until we see a complication or they present from, uh, yeah, from, from part of diabetes leading to morbidity and potentially surgery. So it's, it's, it's a silent epidemic as much as it is a very vocal epidemic. And that the total impact is, is quite astounding. So I, I think you bring up an extraordinarily important point and, you know, it relates a lot to hypertension. That's another silent killer because, you know, for the most part, people have no idea. What are the typical presentations? How does this sort of find its way into um, somebody realizing, gosh, I, I have this disease? Sadly, no, I don't have um, some of the literature to know what are statistically most common. We often find out about it from a, a heart attack and understanding what drove that. You realize that there was atherosclerosis. And as you work the patient up, you realize that there has been a history of diabetes that's there. And we find out about it often because of the complication. And it's, those are the parts that you often see. Ideally, you're getting regular checks from your PCP. You know, you might, if you have early diabetes, you might get uh, signs of neuropathy to getting a sense that you've already started to lose some of the, you know, the, the your ability to, to detect pain and other important stimuli that the body needs to know. Uh, but yeah, it can come in from any direction. But once we, once you come into the healthcare system, ideally we're giving you the right tests to assess for, you know, both what's your glucose today and how has it looked over the past few months. So I, I think many folks are hopefully familiar, and if they're not, they should be. And uh, you know, having your glucose measured as part of those uh, annual checkups, um, we, we see a sort of generalized trend upwards. It's really something that you need in your body. To be clear, you can't live without it. In fact, it's it, it, if if you have no glucose, if it disappears, in fact, the cascade uh, of the production of energy, if that disappears. Quickly, that's a, a very quick killer, as it were. But in this case, it's sort of the general amount in the body. And you would think, well, that's good, but it's not. It starts to cause problems. And in fact, in your practice as an anesthetist, sorry, I just have to say it that way. Um, <laughs> as a gas man, as you know, I call. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you saw this in a slightly different sense. Tell us about your eye-opening discovery as it, it unfolded. Well, yeah, I think you nailed it. Glucose at the right level, that drives life. That's so critical. If it gets too high, it's toxic. It destroys tissue. And a big part of what led me to amputation prevention is it's destroying the nerves. It's destroying the vessels that supply blood flow to those nerves, these small vessels through atherosclerosis, which of course is happening everywhere in the body. But that's what's leading to end organ dysfunction and disease. You see you know, potential for heart attacks, as you described, or for, in my case, you see poor blood flow into the extremities and poor, your nerves start to stop to feel when, 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 when destruction has occurred. So I, I didn't really realize 
this problem well, well before I ever researched the problem until probably the third year of medical school. It's early on. And I just remember my one of my first rotations was being in the ER in Pittsburgh. And the, a woman was wheeled into the room that I was um, helping to manage. And she had very thick bandages covering both of the lower extremities above the knee, all the way to above the knee. And you could tell she had sort of a toxic presentation or there was a little, like she wasn't, their mental status wasn't perfectly intact. And you could smell infection and colloquially, you know, decay. You smell, when that comes in the room, you know what's going on. And as we took down those bandages, sure enough, there was, uh, you know, the smell of staph and pseudomonas. There was gangrene. I, I knew even with my limited education that she was likely not going to leave the hospital with her legs. She was a good chance not going to ever leave the hospital. And unfortunately, that was the case. And that was such a dramatic presentation. You realize, like, how could it have come this far? How could the system have missed this? How could, in a way, had she missed it? And and it, the, the Senate described almost hid it from herself with these bandages that it got to the point where we were in a clear emergency probably septic infection had taken place and is now circulating through the body and causing even circulatory compromise. So it was, I, I can't describe the, how you feel emotionally when you see this and you're like, how could this have happened? And then fast forward years later, I'm now an anesthesia resident and I'd spend whole days in the operating room doing amputations. It was crazy to me that we were still catching them so late that now we're or civil war medicine is if it's disease, cut it off. That's the state of that's best practice right now. Oh, it's bad tissue. We let's eliminate that bad tissue. You see the you know, anesthetist, I do it. I want to use that more often. And then you're seeing the vascular surgeon and they really only have one tool in their toolkit at this point. It's lose the limb. And it just seemed like such a tragic waste of freedom for this patient, waste of life because the mortality is uh, as high as 70% in five years. That's a dramatic number. And, and anyone who gets a diabetic foot complication, just to give you a sense of how impactful it is, it's about half the cost in managing diabetic foot of all cancer in the United States, yet it's twice the five-year mortality. It's twice as likely to lead to uh, a patient's death at five years than all cancer. So it's, it's a juggernaut. And yet, it, you, in many ways, you don't really see the problem until it's right in front of you, in this case, in the operating room with a jaw dropper presentation. It's just dramatic. So I, some quite extraordinary sort of data points in there that I, I think are worth reemphasizing. So first of all, you know, this is it, it centers on a, mo a single molecule. We'll call it sugar. Glucose is the actual molecule. There are multiple variants, but for simplicity's sake and too high is essentially a long-term issue of creating problems that you eloquently describe in a single patient. And then notice in your uh, practice in the operating room, you're seeing multiple negative impacts, the removal of people's limbs to essentially allow them to survive because they decay. Um, and we're not catching this, we're failing. Uh, to identify this. Now, we can test, we've got blood tests, but you know, you've got to go in, but there's a better way. And you've actually identified an alternative approach to this that I think is really quite uh, innovative. It's, it's addressing a, a problem with a 
I'm going to call it simple, and I, forgive me, I know it's it's more complicated than that, but in, in basic terms, it's a simple approach. Tell us what you found. Well, to, to contrast it, like the way the state of our care is today, which is what it almost seemed to demand change, was we, we hope to catch, you know, amputations are caused by wounds. The, the glucose has also uh, impaired your ability to heal them. High sugar is like a Petri dish. It, it just attracts some of the bad bugs like mucor. And we hope to catch it in two ways. One is we hope that the patient catches it early, that they need to do foot regular foot checks, but recognize that this patient who's most at risk for diabetic foot complications often has diabetic retinopathy. They're morbidly obese and have poor range of motion as if they're going to be able to get good visibility at the bottom of their foot, right? We, but we, we hope that they're doing that daily. And yet for many patients who are overwhelmed by their care, who, who don't always have the structure that they need to build that in, that's not reliable. Method two would be, you hope the doc takes off the shoes and socks and looks at the foot. The data there is not great. So even we could be missing, it could even be there. We could have signs of an early wound and it could be missed when you're in front of the clinician. To me, that's crazy. The whole thing is, it's like cancer. If you just found out about them early, they're easy, they're chip shots. But we don't find out about them until they see me in, either in the ER or the patient's looking you know, toxic and there's suddenly them saying there's a real problem. So what we had to figure out was a way, could we actually find out the moment that it's starting before it's a wound? You know, when, when, you, when the tissue's starting to break down, weeks ideally before the wound presents, could we find it then? And the real problem we realized we had to solve wasn't the science of early detection of foot ulcers. And I'll explain how we do that in a second. It was actually one of engagement because yet again, this patient who's very complex and is overwhelmed by their care, it's hard to find ways to build that structure and where you can get high levels of engagement for very long periods of time. It was That was almost the real problem we were solving because if we could solve that, there's so much more we could do. And what we realized is we could build a mat, a very simple form factor, the mental model, the scale, you just step on it for 20 seconds a day, that's it. And then you go on with the rest of your life. That seemed like the beginning, the, the beginning of a, of a platform, using that a little bit in a different way that we could get into the home and get regular usage out of. And then on the top surface, if we add on a, an array of temperature measuring sensors, what we could look for then is the early sign of tissue breakdown, which is inflammation. You get a little bit of tissue damage, the body responds with an inflammatory response, bringing extra blood flow. And then we can see that essentially as a localized foot fever that says something could be happening. Now, when you put those together, we, we, we did a seven center trial a few years ago that showed that we can actually detect 97% of these wounds a little over five weeks before they presented, about 37 days on average. There was the big jump in time that we catch them early, they're relatively chip shots. I can tell you more about the outcomes data in a second, but the key was make it super simple. We get very high engagement rates, which we can, we can also talk about. And with that, we can get this array into the homes and get constant thermal data from this patient and pick up ideally the day or over the, over the few days that it begins, we just change the course gently and prevent the entire cascade from occurring. And then one last piece to just to speak to that is we also recognize that cold technology into a patient who often again is overwhelmed with their care or has health literacy gaps and tech literacy gaps. We wanted to, I like this idea that a person, a relationship can drive change. The technology gives you meaningful insight in how to do that conversation. 
So we actually have a team of nurses across the country that partner with this patient and say, here's what's happening. And it's the relationship that's allowing us to really move the needle, but the technology is giving us that insight, that moment to know right now you need to ask this question in time. And that I think is a big part of the driver of, of the impact that we have. So, I, you know, there's a critical point here that is, this is pre, essentially disease. There's inflammation, as you described, that's taking place. And, you know, this is a focus on feet. And to be clear, this is a widespread disease, as you, you know, rightly point out, there's the diabetic retinopathy. In fact, I interviewed somebody talking about that specifically with a earlier widespread access for, you know, folks in uh, rural areas to essentially expand the capability because we just don't have the resources. I think, you know, clearly there's some um, challenges with um, the, the uh, production style of medicine that limits people's time. I think when, you know, people came in, they had time, you would get to that potentially in the history um, and that would sort of introduce, gosh, I would like to see or, you know, identify we're losing that. So what you're doing is putting in uh, a mat that is sensing temperature. So that's actually another device. Does that create more challenges because we're creating something that has to go? So there's an, a cost. Is it going to be accessible? Is it simple to, to set up? Where, where does all of that sit? Because it feels like, well, great, we're going to give it to some, but we're not going to get the widespread equity of this. Yeah, I think access is, is key. And just to touch on one of the things you think about, like the way our system is set up is you need to come to us. And we hope you come in at that right time. And then you think about, do you have heart disease or you potentially have uh, a developing wound in your foot? You have to park in this parking lot. You have to walk these long ways to the clinic. It's, it's not built to go to the patient when the patient needs the care. And that's really the hope of a health system 2.0 is we're gonna bring the care to you on your time when it makes sense. And not when I have an opening and I can get you in on Tuesday at 10 and 10 a.m. That doesn't make any sense. We wanna know the moment there's an issue and bring resources to that patient at that time. And But to do that, you, you accessibility, like we have to find a way to do this. And one of the more exciting changes we've seen over the past while now is is uh, a movement away from straight fee-for-service care where you're paid for every procedure, which has some well-cited challenges in, in, in uh, uh, incentives. And now with managed care, you can actually put preventative systems into play and those have viable models for the healthcare system. An insurance company, for example, or a carrier can put in a system like ours. And then if they get savings, it's sustainable. And that drives further and further utilization of prevention systems. And I think to do that right, you have to make sure that you, for, for this patient, a very complex patient, we have to eliminate, it's not just accessibility in terms of, is there someone who can buy it on behalf of the patient? It's also, if they do get, if it goes in the home, is it usable? And can it be used for long periods of time? For example, my, my dad uh, he, he still has a VCR or he's not necessarily at the most cutting edge of tech and it's still blinking midnight. I find that hysterical. Like dad, why, why is it blinking midnight? He's like, oh, well, I had a power outage two, three years ago. And he, but he never like to, to now deal with this thing and have to switch it. Like that was dominating. We, we had to find a way to eliminate that. So it's, it just has a cell phone inside of it and there's no pairing anymore. You don't have to worry about a Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth. It had, um, 
Uh, it's got a battery. It lasts six weeks. And we know when the battery is going low, we can always call you to remind you if to charge it overnight, if that's the case. We wanted to eliminate any one of these points of failure so that if that pair can, can cover it, we know that they can use it regardless of their level of comfort with technology, et cetera. I think that was a critical piece. Hopefully no more blinking midnights for our system. I, I think great point. We've we've probably all got relatives uh, and experiences that are similar to the flashing 12. It was uh, an ongoing joke and it's something that I, I personally can't tolerate. I, I walk into strangers' houses and I see that and I'll go fix it. I, I just can't stand it. So I understand that. So you've made this uh, as easy as possible, I think, you know, exceedingly important in terms of uh, access capabilities. It's uh, simple to put in. It's clearly a benefit. I mean, the statistics are just astounding. And to be clear, you, you've validated this. This is with studies. And now I think FDA approved, correct? FDA cleared. Yeah. Uh, um, it, so approval is a level for more of an invasive tech, but cleared and probably one of our most ex exciting studies is we looked at Kaiser Permanente, which is an amazing preventative platform versus Kaiser with our system to see what was the incremental improvement and not to uh, spend too much air, but we, we saw a 71% reduction in amputations. We saw a 52% reduction in all hospitalizations across the board, not just diabetic foot. Only half of them were diabetic foot. The other half were things like heart attack, stroke, CHF exacerbation, COPD exacerbation. We dropped all ear visits by 40% and all outpatient visits by 26%. So even with when you have a great preventative platform, that plus a system in the home, which alerts you to things earlier, allows us to drive pretty significant savings. So it's been exciting to see this now up from a, an early idea where we were grad students coming up with terrible ideas on flip pads to now seeing it across the country, um, helping patients stay on their own two feet and hopefully keep them out of the healthcare system. So I, I, I think important point here, not just about the technology, it, it never is. Um, I, I think the combined aspects of resources that build around this, that go reach out. And I think the extraordinary point here, and you, you know, I'm, it would be good to get your thoughts around some of those other things. Cause obviously, you know, most folks look at this and say, wow, you know, diabetes in the foot, but you went much further than that. What do you think is going on there? Well, certainly, it, you think of a wound, it's it's this hypercoagulable bomb that sets off. And so higher rates of heart attack, stroke. There was a recent paper come out earlier this year that showed you're twice as likely to be hospitalized for heart attack, stroke, CHF exacerbation, acute kidney injury. So we, you often see it cited that a third of diabetes is complications of the foot. It's much larger than that because these heart attacks are actually causal to this foot infection that's happening. It's a much broader problem systemic wide, but if we can keep that wound, we can prevent it from ever occurring, not only to get to keep the limb, which is critical to this patient to keep them independent. We have an, an ability to, to prevent many of the cardiopulmonary reasons that are keeping patients you know, from, from enjoying the life that they, they wanna live. Fantastic. John, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for the time here today. I really appreciate it to be able to talk about this. As our healthcare system moves further towards total care, these systems are seeking new and improved ways to manage and help patients under their care. As John points out, we need to bring the care to you, move our systems out into the community, and better yet, into the patient's home, 
with simple, easy to use capabilities. This has to be supported by a clinical care team that's empowered to utilize the increasingly available early warning data to allow the prevention of disease, not civil war medicine. That localized foot fever is an easily detected early warning signal that can help direct the expensive and sparse resources for maximum effect in the prevention of disease and promotion of wellness. Your better pill to swallow is enable the delivery of prevention and care out in the community and the home. Empower your patients to be fully engaged in their own wellness. Catch disease before it presents as a serious clinical condition and enable your patients to stay healthier. They will thank you and so will the clinicians and the accountants as it delivers better, more economic care to more people. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.